section 17 of volume 1e of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Calvin. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 17, Chapter 54, Part 1. Chapter 54 Charles I. The causes of disgust, which for above thirty years had daily been multiplying in England, were now come to full maturity, and threatened the kingdom with some great revolution or convulsion. The uncertain and undefined limits of prerogative and privilege had been eagerly disputed during that whole period, and in every controversy between prince and people, the question, however doubtful, had always been decided by each party in favour of its own pretensions. Too lightly, perhaps, moved by the appearance of necessity, the king had even assumed powers incompatible with the principles of limited government, and had rendered it impossible for his most zealous partisans entirely to justify his conduct, except by topics so unpopular that they were more fitted, in the present disposition of men's minds, to inflame than appease the general discontent. Those great supports of public authority, law, and religion had likewise, by the unbounded compliance of judges and prelates, lost much of their influence over the people, or rather had, in a great measure, gone over to the side of the faction, and authorised the spirit of opposition and rebellion. The nobility also, whom the king had no means of retaining by offices and preferments suitable to their rank, had been seized with the general discontent and unwarily threw themselves into the scale which had already begun too much to preponderate. Sensible of some encroachments which had been made by royal authority, men entertained no jealousy of the commons, whose enterprises for the acquisition of power had ever been covered with the appearance of public good, and had hitherto gone no further than some disappointed efforts and endeavours. The progress of the Scottish malcontents reduced the crown to an entire dependence for supply. Their union with the popular party in England brought great accession of authority to the latter. The near prospect of success roused all latent movements and pretensions, which had hitherto been held in such violent constraint, and the torrent of general inclination and opinion ran so strongly against the court that the king was in no situation to refuse any reasonable demands of the popular leaders, either for defining or limiting the powers of his prerogative. Even many exorbitant claims, in his present situation, would probably be made, and must necessarily be complied with. The triumph of the malcontents over the church was not yet so immediate or certain. Though the political and religious Puritans 
mutually lent assistance to each other, there were many who joined the former, yet declined all connection with the latter. The hierarchy had been established in England ever since the Reformation. The Romish Church in all ages had carefully maintained that form of ecclesiastical government. The ancient fathers too bore testimony to episcopal jurisdiction, and though parity may seem at first to have had a place among Christian pastures, the period during which it prevailed was so short that few undisputed traces of it remained in history. The bishops and their more zealous partisans inferred thence the divine, indefeasible right of prelacy. Others regarded that institution as venerable and useful, and, if the love of novelty led some to adopt the new rites and discipline of the Puritans, the reverence to antiquity retained many in their attachment to the liturgy and government of the Church. It behooved, therefore, the zealous innovators in Parliament to proceed with some caution and reserve. By promising all measures which reduced the power of the crown, they hoped to disarm the king, whom they justly regarded, from principle, inclination and policy, to be the determined patron of the hierarchy. By declaiming against the supposed encroachments and tyrannies of the prelates, they endeavoured to carry the nation, from a hatred of their persons, to an opposition against their office and character. And when men were enlisted in party, it would not be difficult, they thought, to lead them by degrees into many measures for which they formerly entertained the greatest aversion. Though the new sectaries comprised not at all first the majority of the nation, they were inflamed, as is usual among innovators, with extreme zeal for their opinions. Their unsurmountable passion, disguised to themselves as well as to others, under the appearance of holy fervours, was well qualified to make prolocytes, and to seize the minds of the ignorant multitude. And one furious enthusiast was able, by his active industry, to surmount the indolent efforts of many sober and reasonable antagonists. When the nation, therefore, was so generally discontented, and little suspicion was entertained of any design to subvert the church and monarchy, no wonder that almost all elections ran in favour of those who, by their high pretensions to piety and patriotism, had encouraged the national prejudices. It is a usual compliment to regard the king's inclination in the choice of speaker, and Charles had intended to advance Gardiner, recorder of London, to that important trust. But so little interest did the crown at that time possess in the nation, that Gardiner was disappointed of his election, not only in London, but in every other place where it was attempted, and the king was obliged to make the choice of speaker full on Lenthal, a lawyer of some character, but not sufficiently qualified for so high and difficult an office. The eager expectations of men with regard to a parliament, surrounded at so critical a juncture, and during such general discontents, a parliament which, from the situation of public affairs, could not be abruptly dissolved, and which was to execute everything left unfinished by former parliaments, these motives, so important and interesting, engaged the attendance of all the members, and the House of Commons was never observed to be from the beginning so full and numerous. Without any interval, therefore, they entered upon business, and by unanimous consent they immediately struck a blow which may, in a manner, be regarded as decisive. The Earl of Strafford was considered as chief minister, both on account of the credit which he possessed with his master, and of his own great and uncommon vigour and capacity. By a concurrence of accidents, 
this man laboured under the severe hatred of all the three nations which comprised the British monarchy. The Scots, whose authority now ran extremely high, looked on him as the capital enemy of their country, and one whose counsels and influence they had most reason to apprehend. He had engaged the Parliament of Ireland to advance large subsidies in order to support a war against them. He had levied an army of 9,000 men, with which he had menaced the, all their western coast. He had obliged the Scots, who lived under his government, to renounce the Covenant, their national idol. He had in Ireland proclaimed the Scottish Covenanters rebels and traitors, even before the King had issued any such declaration against him in England, and he had even dissuaded his master against the late treaty and suspension of arms, when he regarded it as dangerous and dishonourable. So avowed and violent were the Scots in their resentment of all these measures, that they had refused to send commissioners to treat at York, and was at first proposed, because, they said, the lieutenant of Ireland, their capital enemy, being general of the king's forces, had there the chief command and authority. Strafford, first as deputy, then as lord lieutenant, had governed Ireland during eight years with great vigilance, activity, and prudence, but with very little popularity. In a nation so averse to English government and religion, these very virtues were sufficient to draw on him the public hatred. The manners, too, and character of this great man, though to all full of courtesy, and to his friends full of affection, were at the bottom haughty, rigid, and severe. His authority and influence during the time of his government had been unlimited, but no sooner did adversity seize him than the concealed aversion of the nation blazed up at once, and the Irish Parliament used every expedient to aggravate the charge against him. Strafford, sensible of the load of popular prejudices under which he laboured, would gladly have declined attendance in Parliament, and he begged the King's permission to withdraw himself to his government of Ireland, at least to remain at the head of the army in Yorkshire, where many opportunities he hoped would offer, by reason of his distance, to elude the attacks of his enemies. But Charles, who had entire confidence in the Earl's capacity, thought that his counsels would be extremely useful during the critical session which approached. And when Strafford still insisted on the danger of his appearing amidst so many arranged enemies, the king, little apprehensive that his own authority was so suddenly to expire, promised him protection, and assured him that not a hair of his head should be touched by the Parliament. No sooner was Strafford's arrival known than a concerted attack was made upon him in the House of Commons. Pym, in a long-studied discourse, divided into many heads, after his manner, enumerated all the grievances under which the nation laboured, and, from a complication of such oppressions, inferred that a deliberate plan had been formed of changing entirely the frame of government, and subverting the ancient laws and liberties of the kingdom. Could anything, he said, increase our indignation against so enormous and criminal a project, it would be to find that, during the reign of the best of princes, the constitution had been endangered by the worst of ministers, and that the virtues of the king had been seduced by the wicked and pernicious council. We must inquire, added he, from what fountain these waters of bitterness flow, and through, though doubtless many evil counsellors will be found to have contributed to their endeavours, yet there is one who challenges the infamous preeminence, and who, by his courage, enterprise, and capacity, is entitled to the first place among these betrayers of their country. 
he is the Earl of Strafford, Lieutenant of Ireland, and President of the Council of York, who, in both places, and in all other provinces where he has been entrusted with authority, has raised ample monuments of his tyranny, and will appear, from a survey of his actions, to be the chief promoter of every arbitrary council. Some instances of imperious expressions, as well as actions, were given by Pym, who afterwards entered into a more personal attack of that minister, and endeavoured to expose his whole character and manners. The austere genius of Strafford, occupied in the pursuits of ambition, had not rendered his breast altogether inaccessible to the tender passions, or secured him from the dominion of the fair, and, in that sullen age, where the irregularities of pleasure were more reproachful than the most odious crimes, these weaknesses were thought worthy of being mentioned, together with his treasons, before so great an assembly. And upon the whole, the orator concluded, that it belonged to the house to provide a remedy proportionable to the disease, and to prevent the further mischiefs justly to be apprehended from the influence which this man had acquired over the measures and counsels of their sovereign. Sir John Clotworthy, an Irish gentleman, Sir John Hotham of Yorkshire, and many others entered into the same topics, and after several hours spent in bitter invective, when the doors were locked in order to prevent all discovery of their purpose, it was removed in consequence of the resolution secretly taken that Strafford should immediately be impeached of high treason. The motion was received with universal approbation, nor was there in all the debate one person who offered to stop the torrent by any testimony in favour of the Earl's conduct. Lord Falkland alone, though known to be his enemy, modestly desired the House to consider whether it would not better suit the gravity of their proceedings, first to digest by a committee many of those particulars which had been mentioned, before they sent up an accusation against him. It was ingeniously answered by Pym that such a delay might probably blast all of their hopes, and put it out of their power to proceed any further in the prosecution, that when Strafford should learn that so many of his enormities were discovered, his conscience would dictate his condemnation, and so great was his power and credit, he would immediately procure the dissolution of the Parliament, or attempt some other desperate measure for his own preservation, that the commons were only accusers, not judges, and it was the province of the peers to determine whether such a complication of enormous crimes in one person did not amount to the highest crime known by the law. Without further debate, the impeachment was voted. Pym was chosen to carry it up to the lords, most of the house accompanied him on so agreeable an errand, and Strafford, who had just entered the House of Peers, and who little expected so speedy a prosecution, was immediately, upon this general charge, ordered into custody, with several symptoms of violent prejudice in his judges as well as in his prosecutors. In the inquiry concerning grievances, and in the censure of past measures, Lord could not long escape the severe scrutiny of the Commons, who were led to, in the accusation of that prelate, as well as by their prejudices against his whole order, as by the extreme antipathy which his intemperate zeal had drawn upon him. After a deliberation which scarcely lasted half an hour, an impeachment of high treason was voted against the subject, the first both in rank and in favour throughout the kingdom. Though this incident, concerning the example of Strafford's impeachment and the present disposition of the nation in Parliament, needed be no surprise to him, yet was he betrayed into some passion when the accusation was presented. The commons themselves, he said, 
though his accusers, did not believe him guilty of the crimes with which they charged him, an indiscretion which the next day, upon more mature deliberation, he desired leave to retract, but so little favourable were the peers, that they refused him this advantage or indulgence. Lord also was immediately, upon this general charge, sequestered from Parliament and committed to custody. The capital article insisted on against these two great men was the design which the Commons supposed to have been formed of subverting the laws and constitution of England and introducing arbitrary and unlimited authority into the kingdom. Of all the King's ministers, no one was so obnoxious in this regard as the Lord Keeper Finch. He, it was who, being Speaker in the King's Third Parliament, had left the chair and refused to put the question when ordered to by the House. The extrajudicial opinion of the judges in the case of ship money had been procured by his intrigues, persuasion, and even menaces in all unpopular and illegal measures. He was ever most active, and he was even believed to have declared publicly that, while he was keeper, an order of counsel should always with him be equivalent to a law. To appease the rising displeasure of the commons, he desired to be heard at the bar. He prostrated himself with all humility before them, but this submission availed him nothing. An impeachment was resolved on, and in order to escape their fury, he thought proper secretly to withdraw and retire into Holland. As he was not esteemed equal to Strafford, or even to Lord, either in capacity or in fidelity to his master, it was generally believed that his escape had been connived at by the popular leaders. His impeachment, however, in his absence, was carried up to the House of Peers. Sir Francis Winderbeck, the secretary, was a creature of lords, a sufficient reason for his being extremely obnoxious to the commons. He was secretly suspected, too, of the crime of popery, and it was known that, from the complaisance to the queen, and indeed in compliance with the king's maxims of government, he had granted many indulgences to Catholics, and had signed warrants for the pardons of priests and their delivery from confinement. Grimstone, a popular member, called him in the house the very pander and broker to the whore of Babylon. Finding that the scrutiny of the commons was pointing towards him, and being sensible that England was no longer a place of safety for men of his character, he suddenly made his escape into France. Thus, in a few weeks, this house of commons, not opposed, or rather seconded by the peers, had produced such a revolution in government that the two most powerful and most favoured ministers of the king were thrown into the tower, and daily expected to be tried for their life. Two other ministers had, by flight alone, saved themselves from a like fate. All the king's servants saw that no protection could be given them by their master. A new jurisdiction was erected in the nation, and before that tribunal all those trembled who had before exalted most in their credit and authority. What rendered the power of the commons more formidable was the extreme prudence with which it was conducted. Not content with the authority which they had acquired by attacking these great ministers, they resolved to render the most considerable bodies of the nation obnoxious to them. Though the idol of the people, they determined to fortify themselves likewise with terrors, and to overawe those who might still be inclined to support the falling ruins of the monarchy. During the late military operations, several powers had been exercised by the lieutenants and deputy lieutenants of counties, and these powers, though necessary for the defence of the nation, and even warranted by all former precedent, yet not being authorised by statute, 
were now all voted to be illegal, and the persons who had assumed them declared delinquents. This term was newly come into vogue, and expressed a degree and species of guilt not exactly known or ascertained. In consequence of that determination, many of the nobility and prime gentry of the nation, while only exerting as they justly thought the legal powers of magistracy, unexpectedly found themselves involved in the crime of delinquency, and the commons reaped this multiplied advantage by their vote. They disarmed the crown, they established the maxims of rigid law and liberty, and they spread the terror of their own authority. The writs for ship money had been directed to the sheriffs, who were required, and even obliged, under severe penalties, to assess the sums upon individuals, and to levy them by their authority. Yet were all the sheriffs, and all those who had been employed by the legal service, voted, by a very vigorous sentence, to be delinquents. The king, by the maxims of law, could do no wrong. His ministers and servants, of whatever degree, in case of any violation of the constitution, were alone culpable. All the farmers and officers of the custom, who had been employed during so many years in levying tonnage and poundage, and the new impositions, were likewise declared criminals, and were afterwards glad to compound for a pardon by paying a fine of £150,000. Every discretionary or arbitrary sentence of the Star Chamber and High Commission Courts, which, from the very constitution, were arbitrary, underwent a severe scrutiny, and all of all those who had concurred in such sentences were voted to be liable to the penalties of law. No minister of the king, no member of the council, but found himself exposed by this decision. End of section 17, chapter 54, part 1. Recording by Matthew Calvin. Canberra, Australia.